Welcome to The Hard Truth with internationally recognized expert and forensic criminologist, Dr. Brent Turby, and his co-host, Melanie Inglace, a forensic investigator. They discuss, dissect, and explain the often complicated world of law enforcement investigations, their limitations, and the overall state of forensic science and the reality of intersectionality within the justice system. So sit back and enjoy this master-level discussion on The Hard Truth. Good afternoon. It is January 17th, 2022. And this week we are going to talk about crime scene investigation. Specifically, we're going to talk about some of the myths that have arisen because of the way the crime scene investigation has been discussed and has entered our popular, the popular culture. Um, and again, I'm here with my co-host, Millie Inglis, out of Canada, a, friend, a, friend, a fantastic forensic investigator who has recently taken a position, full disclosure, with my company as, a, as, an, as, an, as, a, as an affiliate crime, scene, a crime analyst. How does it I feel? Have. Tell me, how does it feel? So, what the, tell me what your new position entails, just for the just for people to understand what you do now. Because you've gone, you went through our program and studied, then you went through a forensic residency that lasted way too long, and, <laughs> <laughs> and now you've taken a professional position with us. How does it feel? Tell me what you do. I do case intake. What's what that does mean? That mean what mm-hmm. does that mean? Why does why is that even a job? Why would we even need that? That doesn't sound like a thing. Well, because nobody reads the cases. And you've come out <laughs> shooting, which is actually a pretty and, important thing. And I am now doing that job of the people that don't do the job. They're supposed to be doing the job. <laughs> Every single professional who encounters a case is supposed to read it. And what yeah. I have found in my professional career is that most people have compartmentalized their functions so narrowly that they do not read anything. Uh, it's hard to get attorneys to read the case. Uh, it's hard to get investigators to read their case. It's hard to get investigators to communicate. Prosecutors don't read their case until they're even going to trial because they don't want to waste the time. They want to get a deal beforehand. So they'll try to get a deal without having read the case. Um, I always say the same thing. If you want to be any good at this work, be the only per- be the person who read the case because you'll mm-hmm. be the only one. I still can't believe that it's a thing, to be honest yeah. with you. Yeah, like I learned that early on. I thought, well, what am I going to do? What is this position? What what does this mean? And then you hand me cases and I'm looking through it thinking, well, this was pretty obvious. Has no one read this? How did we get to this point in this case or this conviction when there's either a bunch of uh, information missing or did they was there and just nobody looked at it? That's nobody looked at it. Nobody read it. And no, or two people, two different people read two different documents and they never talked to each other about what was in each document. So uh, evidence that didn't get collected, evidence that didn't get tested, witnesses that didn't get interviewed, uh, crime scenes that didn't get processed at all or um, at all theories that don't match the evidence as it exists and statements that are bold faced lies. Case intake is about examining what you got and looking for the inconsistencies and what you have, what you don't have, and what can still be done, right? Making lots of lists. Making lots of lists. Here's a list of things that this person said that didn't make any sense or that don't match the evidence. Here's a list. Or <laughs> going through and looking at, uh, look at comparing a finding 
with a protocol? Like, did you, you have this finding that you made? Did you do the protocol to make that finding or did you just make that up? A lot of times they just make it up. Yeah, the um, list for law enforcement are my favorite. It's basically just a nice way of saying, here's a list of things that you didn't do that you were supposed to do. And now I have to, to tell you how to do your job. Yeah, that you're required <laughs> to do. Yeah. And that, and that leads us to today's subject, which is crime scene investigation. There is a, a belief in popular culture now, especially among people who watch a lot of true crime or read a lot of true mm -hmm. crime, that they have a really good bead on what crime scene investigation is and entails. And they, that even they have an expert level understanding. They'll even, we've entered this new age where anybody with a computer or a cell phone believes that they are an expert because they have access to Google. And, it, and it, it's even worse when those people work in the justice system and they step outside of their lane and start commenting on things that are not within their ability. I had that problem this week with a client. It was very distressing. <laughs> so I think we see that more often than not these days. Yeah. And it's about providing this cooling effect to the case and looking at it and going, okay, here's, here's what the, here's what the, here's what science actually says, not what you believe based on what you watch on television. And that's our biggest problem. Our biggest problem, I guess, again and again, most people learn about history, culture, art, science, forensic science and crime from movies and television. They don't learn from other people. They, they don't take the time to learn. They don't take the time to study. They don't take the time to do actual reading. They'd rather just watch a movie and, and generalize that. And mm -hmm. the same people who do that are the same people who work in law enforcement. They'll do the same thing. They'll, and the way you can tell someone's a, an expert or not is when they're talking to you and they cite an example. Their example is from a case that they've worked, not from a movie that they saw or a TV mm -hmm. series that they saw. Documentary. Right. A documentary or something. And that's, that's not, that's information, but it's not knowledge and it's not insight either. So let's talk. Let's let's break this down real quick. What is crime scene investigation? Um, I want to show this real quick. We'll share my screen so everybody can see what I'm looking at. Uh, this is a little presentation I put together a while ago. Infographics on different things on related to forensic criminology. Let's just scroll down real quick here to the areas that we care about. So this is a big one right here: the crime scene investigator or the crime scene technician. But if we, have to, we have to separate the process from the professional. So a crime scene technician is somebody, by law, they have to work for, they work for the police department. The police agency has the only duty of care, the only legal requirement, the only legal duty, the only legal obligation, the only legal authority to seize a crime scene, to, to, to uh, tape it off, to collect evidence and submit it for testing. Law enforcement has that only responsibility. And because they're the only ones who can do it, the responsibility is heavy. Their people have to be properly trained and educated. They have to use good scientific protocols and they have to be reliable. Uh, they have to be reliable, reliable of good character and of good, um, uh, good education, training and certification. So these are individuals. Crime scene technicians are individuals who process crime scenes. There is no reconstruction at the crime scene. Crime reconstruction is a completely different endeavor. Crime scene technicians process. It means what they do is they recognize, collect, document, transport, and assist with the storage of physical evidence from the crime scene. They are usually there. They always work for the police. Then they are either sworn or unsworn. Sometimes they are sworn personnel, which means they have a badge and a gun and that kind of stuff. And sometimes they are civilian personnel, which means they don't have a badge and a gun. They're just like a jail, uh, somebody who works in dispatch. 
right? Mm -hmm. These are not people who by virtue of their existence are capable or qualified to give expert findings or testimony as scientists. They are not scientists. They follow checklists. They do what they're told. They collect what they're told and they preserve package transport and send it off. They're not involved in interpretation. The danger becomes when crime scene technicians believe, confuse themselves for scientists or for experts. All right. That's the biggest problem that we have because prosecutors do not like scientists to testify because scientists introduce doubt. They introduce complication. They introduce different scenarios. They understand the limitations of the evidence and they testify about it. A police technician does not understand those things. So they will speak in terms of certainty and absolutes that aren't earned, that aren't, uh, that don't exist in the real world. Prosecutors love that. They want to, they can control that narrative with the police officer. So what has happened over the years is that you have a situation where the, the legal community has subverted the scientific community by putting forth police officers and police employees as though they are scientists and experts when they aren't. All you got to do to defeat that is to put a challenge to it. But most attorneys, even those working for the defense, are afraid to do that. They don't understand the evidence. They don't understand the different roles. And they simply do not understand the limitations of the science. They think a cop says it, it must be true. And they don't like challenging it for a lot of different reasons. Over the years, I've become much more, um, how do I put this, skeptical of the defense attorney community and, and their abilities uh, as, I, as I watch them get worse, not better. So that's its own little problem. There are two documents that I would refer people to if they want to understand more or better about uh, what crime scene investigation is or is not. One of them, uh, one of the best monographs I've ever seen written on crime scene investigation is a monograph, is, a, is a, a, an encyclopedia article written by, uh, for the Encyclopedia of Law Enforcement back in 2005 by a guy named Peter DeForest. He's one of the best crime scene investigators in the last 30 years. He's a great, great author, great professional I have a lot of respect for his work. I've only met him twice. He's actually a pretty great, pretty smart guy. And what he said, I'll read the opening here to what he says. It's actually very good. He says, it would not be an exaggeration to assert that crime scene investigation ranks with the most intellectually challenging and difficult human activities. It is also one of the most misunderstood. In practice, uh, crime scene investigation is rarely carried out efficiently and effectively. <laughs> Successful outcomes when and where they occur are often fortuitous rather than falling from intelligently adaptive plans or designs. And I think that says it all right there. A lot of the times crime scene investigation is a complete and utter clusterfuck. It is not mm -hmm. a serious or competent or even organized endeavor. What happens is un untrained people go to crime scenes. They wander around looking at stuff and touching shit. They shouldn't, shouldn't saying things they shouldn't and getting excited, getting their adrenaline up and they don't process it correctly or at all. They just do a very, it's usually a very, I've yet to see a crime scene that was processed like perfectly. There's always going to be a mistake. That doesn't mean they don't. Some place, some agencies don't try. Some agencies are better than others. But if you even halfway know what you're doing, it is very easy to essentially disassemble any crime scene investigation effort because you're, it's being done by people who are not qualified, who don't have the training, and who are overly excited and aren't following protocols. What protocols am I talking about? Well, good, good news for everyone. There's actually uh, the NIJ, the National Institute for, for Justice, of Justice put out a guide for law enforcement on crime scene investigation, which is all about how you process the crime scene point by point. This was originally published in, I believe, 1997 or 1999. And it originally was published under the, uh, with the, on the front cover, it said every scene, every time, meaning that every scene had to be processed like it was a potential homicide. 
And what they found is law enforcement agencies did not want to do that because they didn't want to spend the money. So they weren't doing it. So they took that out. And now it's just like, please try to do this. <laughs> please try to be competent. And I mean, it's very well done and it's full of a lot of really good protocols and everyone agrees it's best practice and nobody does it. That's it's funny fun. that you pulled that up because I had an officer, a uh, retired, um, going to say RCMP, but he was not RCMP, but he gave me a little notebook yep. and it was that, and it was in a small size. And he said, yep. this is what I use. He's one of the best detectives. Awesome. Like incredible cop. And he used that at every single one. And he would hand that out to the new people coming to the crime scene saying, you need to follow this. But right. of course he's retired and gone now. And nobody's like, nobody's using that whatsoever. And I was going to say that I find that you said about the excitement, everyone gets on the crime, you know, they get there yeah. and there's all this excitement. And I find that officers who've been to multiple crime scenes, not, I'm not talking about a rookie at this point. We're talking about someone who's been to multiple crime scenes. Right. They also mistake their training or lack thereof <laughs> with just, well, I've been here before, so I've seen it all. And this must mean this a right. and B equals C because I've been to this place before disregarding the fact that you have no training in this whatsoever scientifically. Right. I get this all the time, which is I get, I get asked when I'm on the stand, two things. Are you a police officer and how much time have you spent in a live crime scene? I'm like, well, first of all, policing has nothing to do with crime scene with crime reconstruction. It's a completely different scientific endeavor done by forensic scientists uh, that can't be done at the scene. That's the first thing. Second. So it's not, it has nothing to do with policing. They just collect the evidence. The scientists do the interpretation. Uh, but the second thing is, um, there are janitors who spend a lot of time in crime scenes and janitors who spend a lot of time watching surgery. Does that mean they're experts in surgery? No, they aren't. So just because you have a cop having proximity to a dead body is, exa is exactly the same. No, it's a ghoul note. It's a ghoulish notion of, did you poke the body with a stick? If you didn't poke the body with a stick, if you didn't touch it and smell it, well, then somehow you are, you have less information and knowledge. No, it just means that I approach it differently and, and use different information and, that particular exercise is something you watched on TV, not in a real scenario. It's but, this idea that if you're not there, you <clears throat> understand. There's no way you can understand what happened unless you were physically standing there. But physically right. standing there after the crime is committed does not make any difference. Not at all. You can, <laughs> you, you can, what you can learn from the scene are sights, smells, sounds, geospatial relationships, right. and witnesses. By the way, all the things that are supposed to be documented by the by law enforcement when they're there. The only thing I can do by going back in at the time while they're there is add contamination. My crime scene technician is not my job. That's the lowest paying job in law enforcement, usually reserved as the rubber gun squad for people who are being punished. Not a place where you put professionals. <laughs> not a place where the professionals are working. So pretending that way with me, I've been doing this more than 25 years now. You can't pretend with me about that kind of stuff. So... Let's talk about that job. That job is the processing of the evidence, the processing of the crime scene. It's very important. It's one of the most important jobs, and we keep treating it like it doesn't matter. We keep putting the wrong people in it, not giving them training, and not requiring them to follow proper protocols, and doing things in such a way that allows them to hide what they did or didn't do. The, the evidence essentially becomes curated, and by that I mean they collect only what the detectives asked them to collect, which fits a particular theory that the detective came up with instead of actually investigating what happened. And this is the crime scene processing person. This should be what? In a, ma in a crime scene, maximum three people. One person, you go in, you do your initial foray to see what you got. Take some pictures or take some uh, video, right? 
Then you make a plan about how you're going to collect it, keep everybody out, secure it off. Then one person goes in and does some collection. Another person is taking notes and another person is doing a sketch. Right. And maybe a fourth person who's done the videography, but that should have been done. But the videography should be done before everything else. Instead, what happens is they hand the video camera off to somebody that's, that they don't like. And they say, you, you're in charge of doing the video. Just take some video. And then or they put the, the they don't take any initial photographs at all or they don't have anybody taking any notes or they don't have anybody actually doing a sketch. What I love is when they have uh, when they put their evidence placards on uh, right on top of the evidence. They'll park a car on top of the evidence. They'll put the evidence placard on top of evidence or they'll reuse evidence placards from different scenes and not clean them. It's just like the idea. They don't really understand what they're doing. And this is the word I want to start using for people to understand. This is for a lot of people. It's very theatrical. It's a lot of cosplay. It's not a lot of understanding of what it is they're doing or why. And we we had a slight conversation about that this morning a little bit, too, which I think should bear repeating. Don't you? Don't you think? Yes. <laughs> okay. I forgot my jacket. All right. Your jacket. Exactly. <laughs> So one of the things that happens when you go and testify in court is that you see people wearing different kinds of outfits to court to testify. Um, scientists often show up or personnel from the police show up in lab coats sometimes. Uh, the white lab coat. I saw, and I, we'll start with this, what I, what I saw that maybe jogged this memory the other day. The other day. I think it was David for yesterday. I was watching an advertisement for a forensic science program and it was uh, people wearing white lab coats. And they, they asked him, why are you proud to wear your white coat? And it's like, oh, I'm proud because my family sees I'm a professional. Another person says, I'm proud because it projects my professional, uh, you know, competence and endeavor and what I'm doing. I'm proud because I'm, I'm, I'm proud of the university I went to, or I'm proud because of this and I'm that. It's all about how it looks. Why does someone need to wear a white lab coat? What's a white lab coat supposed to be for? It has only one purpose. And that is that it demonstrates to you when you have things on you that are that's that are dirty when you get contaminants on you blood chemicals reagents other things that get onto you the dirt whatever and it indicates that you need to to, to uh to, to change that garment between examinations or between cases when you're a doctor when you're when you're working on as a doctor if you are not changing your coat or if you're wearing it outside of that environment it has no value it's the same reason on a boat that a really good captain will take their engine room and they'll paint it completely white. So they'll have their video cameras on that engine and they can see when there's a leak. They can see the leak forming. They can see the black oil or the different colors of coolants hitting the wall. So they know there's a problem. The white lab coat is a surface so that you know there's a problem. It's the same concept of scrubs that you wear for a hospital. There are a lot of, when you, when you are watching a doctor or a nurse or something like that in public wearing their scrubs, what does that mean? Does it mean that they are about ready? They just, oh, they were in surgery and had to come out real quick and do something and go back. Is that what they're, they're trying to create that idea of urgency? Of course yeah, not. Status. It's about status. It's about showing the world that they are a doctor. Or they work in the medical profession. It has no, that scrubs, those scrubs have no business being in the real world at all because they have absorbed contaminants. They have absorbed biological material and they're, they're wearing them in the hospital while they're engaged in their practice so that they can go change out of them into their civilian clothes and go back into the world clean. That's the whole point of scrubs. But if you're wearing them outside of the hospital environment or off the hospital campus, it's because you're trying to tell people that you're a doctor. And a lot of times, especially men, they love to wear it in public. They wear them too tight and they wear them they put their cologne on, they go out to the store. Oh yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm here at the store just buying uh, fruit in my scrubs. It's like, no, you're here to, to pick up chicks. To try to get a girl. 
You're trying to get a girl. That's what you're trying Lead to do. Lead her to believe that you're loaded. Yeah, they want you, to, you want them to know that you're loaded. You want them to yeah. know you've got money and prospects and you're smart and whatever. That's what you're trying to do. And more importantly, um, if, you, if it's true that these are what you're wearing for work, then you are violating basic hospital protocol by wearing dirty scrubs into the environment. You're, you're providing contaminants into the world. The only way that would be reasonable is if you changed into clean scrubs to go outside. I was just, just going to say, you know that we're going to get someone saying, but I changed into clean ones to leave the yeah. hospital for my yeah, why? Why not? Why not wear your civilian clothes? Yeah, because why not? Because right. you want the attention. That's what you're doing it for. You're doing cosplay. Same thing. With, but this is we know this is true because a lot of people dress up as cops or dress up as uh, doctors or dress up, play dress up as forensic scientists. And that the real the, the people in the real world don't know the difference between fake and real. They see the uniform and they immediately respond. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? They're doing cosplay to get a response. So you get people who dress up as fake doctors, as fake cops, as fake whatever, to make people believe that they have a certain background or a certain intelligence or a certain economic status. Like you said, yeah, they status. want respect from people. That's exactly right. And that's the biggest problem that we have is that for a lot of people, this is cosplay. There, it's theatrical. This whole endeavor is theatrical. One of my favorite um, uh, TikTok channels is this guy. And all he does is he does theatrical breakdowns of, of gun range behavior. He goes, you see all these theatrical behaviors on the gun range. It make no sense. Like uh, when you do like a safety, like you do a, you do a, a, a tap check on your gun. It makes no sense. You do, a, uh, you do a, a safety check looking left and right when you're on the range. The problem is you're on a range and you're practicing and you're not you're going to carry bad behavior from the range into real life situations and screw things up. There's so much that people do to copy what looks cool in a movie mm -hmm. as opposed to actually doing their job and doing their work. And that is to me where we begin because you have so many people who are interested in crime scene investigation who are not professionals. And I'm specifically speaking to what, what would be a large audience for this podcast, which is people who are, how do I put this? The who fall into the bored housewife category, who enjoy true crime, who enjoy, you know, um, they watch true crime on TV. They watch true. They read true crime. Let me let me give you the legitimate reasons. I understand why it's mostly women. Do you understand why it's mostly women watching true crime stuff? Because I do. And it, I think it's a, it's a legitimate reason. It's not just tell me. It's not just boredom. So why, why, don't what, you, why don't you tell me from a man's perspective? Tell <laughs> me, white man, white man. <laughs> Well, it's, 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 it's simple. They're afraid of men. Men screw well, women over constantly. Men are very aggressive and, and men are terrible people. Men do terrible things to women with impunity. And so what women, I believe, most of the women that I know that watch this stuff, who are not doing it purely because they're ghoulish people who enjoy this stuff. They're, they're watching it because it's teaching them how to survive. They're looking to see the signs and the indicators in their own relationships to, uh, to, either, to either verify a good reason why they got out of a past bad situation or to avoid a bad situation in the future. Those I so think they're are not, reasons. they're not learning how to hide the body. Clearly not. <laughs> Clearly <laughs> not. Cause nothing you see on movies and television teaches you any of that stuff. It's it doesn't fantasy. teach you anything. No, but I understand. I understand the perspective because I would say that a lot of females that I know as well as myself, that's where this whole thing began for me. Um, I was always drawn into law enforcement, crime scenes, serial killers, all of this sort of thing, but I couldn't figure out why. But I, I survived a couple near-death experiences, one when I was 12, and that's when my fascination came with 
um, abductions and the sex trade and all of those sorts of things, because that almost happened to me. And I wanted to be able to avoid that. So I watched these things looking like, okay, so what, what kind of vehicles should I be looking for? Is it similar to the one that came to me? Is it the same type of individual, the same kind of man? What are we looking at? And it's all of these things to confirm, almost to confirm that it happened to you, even though you know it happened to no. you, but then to find all of this, like to look for evidence, I guess, or signs right. um, so it doesn't happen again. No, that's very fair. And, and I think those are legitimate reasons. I think it's actually, I think it's good. <clears throat> because that's true. We have a responsibility to provide good and accurate information, even in those kinds of programs. Does that make sense? Instead Absolutely. of, it doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't mean now we have less responsibility. Now it means we have more because there are people using this as a guide to understand mm -hmm. human behavior. So we have a responsibility to be better stewards of that information and better stewards of, of each other in terms of providing information and actually caring that the quality is there. We're not here to sensationalize. One of the things I refuse to do is trade on victim and pain and sensationalize. But there's a lot of people who, once they get past the initial, okay, now I understand phase, then they transform into, okay, now I'm a ghoul and I really just enjoy seeing the mistakes that other people make so that I can feel superior. Mm -hmm. I want to see how stupid they are. There's entire, in Mexico and other places in Latin America, they have um, magazines that are dedicated almost entirely to, to showing photographs from death scenes related to narco trafficking and sex trafficking and human trafficking. And wow. invariably it'll be uh, photographs of naked women in the morgue with uh, whatever. And uh, well, scantily clad or naked women in the morgue or scantily clad and naked women on the street dead. And mm -hmm. women are the number one consumers of that because they love to see the narco chicas and their demise. And there's an, is there an analog to that in the United States? Do you think, I think there is. There's got to be. There's, there's got to be. There's got to be. It's like a true, because I don't spend a lot of time in the true crime realm in the United States, but we have the same kind of fascination. It just percolates into other areas. It just goes right into other other kinds of things more. Um, I guess it's like Lifetime original movies. That'd be the same. <laughs> yeah, and <laughs> this could be going a little bit too far, but I also think that we have a an industry, um, an adult industry that is, there's parts of that industry that are mirroring, mirroring crime scene photos yeah. um, and taking pictures and putting them in magazines as like a, just like a porn magazine and people, men, women, whatever, they're consuming these images, but they're actually from a crime scene. Like that, that pose yeah. was taken from an actual dead body that went well, through something traumatic and they have a model posed like that. And people are attracted to this. Now this imagery is, is, somehow attractive no no that's well you're and you're you're there's a there's a couple of layers here to peel back one is the, the creating the image the image evokes a sensation or an idea and there's a lot of people who just like the way something looks right that's one mm -hmm. thing right but there's a whole other layer underneath that of people who are who have fetishized certain things maybe they fetishized blood maybe they have mm -hmm. fetishized the violence maybe they have fetishized the um uh how do I put this? The context. So like the context, the like the people who are into consensual, non-consensual stuff. You know what mm. I mean? Control. That's the, a lot of that boils down to control that. as well. Not just control, but humiliation. It's when you fetishize yeah. your own humiliation or things like that. This is, this is taking a dark turn. But Sorry, I do but, that. Uh, yeah, that, that's why you're here. You're not here to keep okay. it on the straight and narrow. You're here to bring, make it work. 
I bring the darkness. You bring the darkness, except for that ray of light that's shining in like a beacon of hope. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't. I don't. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I don't. I'm. I'm going to put that in your contract where that's required to be there. I, in fact, that Just ray of light is getting its own contract. The angel on one side and the darkness comes here, right? That's where this is coming from. I this wasn't side. thinking that, but it's interesting that you were. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a problem. The problem is you have this different kind of people coming to this work for different reasons. Right. And so our job is to, to keep it, to understand the difference between ourselves and other people, ourselves in the context, and to understand what our role is. And the crime scene investigator's role is supposed to be to document and collect and transport faithfully within the confines of good scientific protocol. That means they got to have good training. They got to know what the protocols are and they got to treat every piece of evidence like it matters. The, what I, what I was, we've talked about this before, but I've worked cases um, and you've seen them too, where officers will walk into the crime scene and walk on blood and walk on other evidence, not paying attention to it. And then they will go and find one thing that they think is important and treat that like it's the most important thing, like it's a mm -hmm. precious jewel or a nugget of gold that they just pulled out of the river and they got to protect it and keep it safe. Where When everything else in the crime scene, they ignore it. And it's because yeah. it fits their narrative. Their, their narrative. I also think they come up with a conclusion at the crime scene. And then that's the narrative that goes through all the reports. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to correct you because I, I don't do this often because you're usually right. I'm always right. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Settle there. Let's, let's, let's try that. I'm, I'm not even, I'm not even close to always right, but oh, I, you're, know right. That. you're right a lot of the time. Let's put it this way at the crime scene. Yes, but it actually happens before then it happens when 911 makes the call and they're responding or when, um, when they hear the call of the radio, when they're being told you're responding to this kind of scene before they even get to the crime scene, they're talking about it. And, and, and then they look for what supports that narrative. That's right. Who's involved? Oh, it's so-and-so. It's, uh, you know, this, it's, uh, we got, we got blue and happy. These two normal drug dealers, or we got uh, Skippy and red. These two, these two drug dealers from down there, they did this kind of thing over here. They're probably doing this over here. It's at this house where we've had these calls. So now we know exactly, we know what neighborhood it's in. We know what the actors are. We know the narrative. This is the, this is what we're going to find when we get there. And then they get there and they look for only those things right. or they, they see only those things because they're incapable of realizing the bias that they just introduced into it. But they're not rewarded for checking themselves. They're not. Re they're rewarded for speed. So they're actually being rewarded to think that quickly in terms of prejudices, and think that and think in terms of not only their prejudice, but their stereotypes. Stereotyping right. is faster, and they're rewarded for speed, not accuracy. That's the problem with crime scene investigators. And they're also being the the. What I love is watching how crime scene investigators play this game where they're not responsible for what they collect at all they're <laughs> because they're not actually in charge of the scene they're in charge of the evidence collection and the person in charge is the detective or the lead detective and i i have a, a great swell of pity for crime scene investigators who are there against their will because they're being punished because they have like three or four bosses telling them what to do and what to collect they're and and none of them are communicating with each other so they're there at the scene and they got to stand their ground on a lot of stuff or else they're going to get steamrolled by different people coming and saying, you need to focus on this. You need to focus on that. You need to focus on this. I just, I feel bad for them. If they don't have good training and good, uh, a good spine, they're not going to be able to no. do their job effectively. <laughs> Let's, what I wanted to do is ask you about your experiences in terms of this particular issue. Tell me what, before you started working with us and with me in particular, 
what were your ideas about crime scene investigation? I mean, you kind of tip, tipped your hat a little bit already, but what did you really think was going on in terms of crime scene investigation? Did you have an overall good view, a good science, good practice, or did you have an overall negative view? What were you thinking when you first approached this subject? I would be in the category of the housewife that we talked about, the women <laughs> that are watching. And I just had this fantasy that it was being handled properly, that there was educated people, there was actual science happening, and that from start to finish, everyone was fully educated in their position and doing their job, and justice had been served. Every, nothing to look at. Everything was done properly. Everyone's checking boxes off their protocols. That's what I believe. Right. Firmly. So it was, a, it was a very organized, professional endeavor with a lot of training behind it. Absolutely. I looked up to law enforcement. That's why I spent seven years of my life trying to get hired onto the police force. I, I had them on a pedestal and I thought this is what I want to do because my mind works like this. I am very good at lists and completing things. And this yeah. is the kind of job that will offer me that. And even, and even if not, even in law enforcement, moving from there to like detective or victim's advocate or something like that, that would be, that would make a difference in a case, right? Right. Absolutely. And that that's what you believe. So we, you think they're got clipboards and they all got pens and everybody's communicating and they're all talking and there's a very clear chain of command with somebody at the top who looks like me giving orders and everybody's following them. You know, that's how it is. Yep. But the problem, that's TV. That's TV and movies. Sure was. And it's not the reality. The reality is uh, you struggle to find the person who's got a good pen at the crime scene. <laughs> yeah. The reality is before you go to a crime scene, you know what you're supposed to, let me tell you what we do when, before we respond, me and Valeria, before we go to a crime scene, even, even if it's usually one that's been released and we're going back to reprocess it, which means to process it for the first time properly. So we go there. First thing I do is I go to the dollar store. What do we, th what do you think I buy at the dollar store? <laughs> Pens and a notebook. Pens. That are brand new, that don't have any highlighters. Shit pens, well, highlighters maybe, but but not necessarily. So I buy ballpoint pens, uh -huh. sharpies, sharpie pens for the evidence. I buy rulers. I buy tape measure. I buy uh, envelopes and uh, nitrile gloves, minimum. And sometimes, if I know it's a shooting case, I'll buy string, mm -hmm. so that I can do the trajectory. You don't need fancy shit. You don't need hundred dollars no. shit. You just need basic stuff. And you I just make sure need something yeah. that would be better than nothing, which is what right. everyone's bringing. Right. And also you bring your charger for your phone and you bring a camera that's specific to the crime scene and you bring multiple batteries for that camera. Why? Because what people don't understand is as you use something, the battery starts getting burning more, more powerful. The, the thing will overheat. I was working a case in um, Savannah, Georgia. Now, it's outside of Savannah and uh, at uh, Fort Stewart, just south of Savannah. And we went to the military evidence holding place for a vehicle. Right. And it was one of those days in one of those days in the south where it's raining and then it would stop raining and then it would be 105 degrees and all the yeah. rain would steam. And so it was steaming up all of our gear constantly. We were doing this outdoor crime scene. Look, oh, I'll give it. This is a really great case. So this case involved a vehicle. The vehicle, they asked me, why do you need to process it? I said, well, I need to look inside and see what's there. Well, we've already processed it. This is the, the crime scene guy from Fort, from the Fort, from Fort Stewart said, we've already processed it. You don't need to look at it again. And I said, yeah, I do. I need to go look at it, break the seal, go into the vehicle, see what's there, see what maybe got missed. He's not, nothing got missed. Nothing, nothing got missed. There's no problems. You don't need to look at it. 
And we we got a we got an, an order from the judge, and the judge let, judge let us go anyway. So we get there, and the first thing that's going on is I'm trying to take pictures with my cell phone. Actually, it was this one, this cell phone. One of and your five one, iPhones. One of my five. I have three iPhones. Just, mm -hmm. just give me a break, all right? One of them's a, one of them's a dummy. I got a new one. Look, they had it. They had a special. <laughs> this isn't. This is an talking iPhone. About your multiple iPhones. I have an iPhone eight, an iPhone twelve, and an iPhone thirteen Max Pro. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you're calling me out. Kid. You're calling I have. Me out. <laughs> Told you. Challenge accepted. I know. You're right. You're right. But this one kept dying because of the heat. Not just the heat in the uh, environment, but the heat from using it. So you use it. The battery mm -hmm. heats up. The sun hits it. It just kept shutting off. I've never had that happen before. I didn't even know that was possible. So the first, so that's one of the most important things is to make sure your gear functions and works. My regular camera is the only thing that was working after a while. So we open up the door of this car, and what's the first thing I see on the uh, the passenger side uh, floor of the vehicle? It's an iWatch. Oh. Yeah. But they got everything. No, no. And I said, what's that? And the guy who's the master chief in charge of the, of the, of the yard, of the car, he goes, he does, covers his hand. He goes, I don't know. Because <sighs> And I said, no, I think it's an iWatch, like the one you're covering up right now. And he took his hand up. He goes, oh, maybe. I don't know. And I said, who was in charge of doing the processing? He said, I don't know. What did you, can I get the list of the, can I get that report from you since you got it, since it's your car was done in your impound? He goes, yeah, we don't have that here. Wow. Really? You don't have it here and you're the place. Turns out he was the guy who was supposed to process it. He, he filed a fake report saying he processed it and there were no photographs. He said he processed the scene and nothing was found. But there was no report. And this iWatch became crucial because what does an iWatch do? It monitors your heart rate. And this was a case involving a double homicide. So we're looking at the heart rate associated with the person wearing that iWatch at the alleged time of the murders. So they didn't even open the door. No. They just did the whole thing. parked the car, forgot about it, and hoped nobody would ask. This is what I'm oh. talking about in terms of theatrical efforts in crime scene investigation. What I would say is this. It's really good that he didn't process the car because he doesn't have any actual training or knowledge. Mm -hmm. not a person who should be processing vehicles. So that's why he was saying that he did because nobody ever checks. No one ever checks these things. So the IWAT, there was like a major fine in the case. It was a huge deal. And they were acting like it wasn't a very big deal. But what I'm, what I'm trying to impress upon people is that <clears throat> this is the, what we call impunity. When people are accustomed to not having their work checked by anyone, they will not even do it and claim they've done it and believe that they can get away with that for, and they'll get away with that for a very long time. That's mm -hmm. to be clear. That's the hard truth about crime scene investigation. It very rarely gets done properly or at all. And there will be lies in the reports about what was done and what wasn't done, but what was collected and what wasn't collected about what was tested and what wasn't tested. No, that's, that to me is the, is the first issue. The, for me, it was the most painful one realizing that this work that I'd committed myself to, was not being done and was being lied about on a regular basis in reports. So now that's my question to you. Now that you've done some cases and you've had some experience, what's your feeling about crime scene investigation? Now tell me about what you think, how you, let's do what, let's break it down. How do you feel about the profession right now? What's been your experience with the people that you found working in the profession? In crime scene investigation, to be specific? Not reconstruction, but the people who go to the scene and process it, if at all. Because a lot, and, and bearing in mind, most people are not aware that most crime scenes are processed, processed by patrol officers who have no training. 
They're not processed by, there's not a crime scene unit that comes in every case. I have conflicting feelings because I've mean. learned a little bit more about the type of, of officer that they do put into those positions. And yeah. most of the time, like you said, they're being punished for something. Mm -hmm. And so they're going into this situation. And so I kind of have a bit of empathy for that situation because they're being thrown into something that they aren't prepared to be in and they're not knowledgeable in, but they're being forced to do it. But then at the same time, it's frustrating. Like every time you give me a, a, a case and I'm looking through it and I just get frustrated more and more so each time I look at a case because nothing is being done or the bare minimum is being done or even worse than that it's just being covered up something it, it just it's just infuriating because we're dealing with somebody's life at the end of the day right something has happened somebody is already passed away there is a crime that has occurred but there is somebody that's on the receiving end of this crime that's right so now we have a life at the end of it that is going to be impacted for the rest of their lives in some cases, and nobody's doing anything properly. Nothing's they're being not done. Taking it they're serious. just like they're not taking it seriously. And when I was when I did a ride along, that's the first time I started to see that. We go to a crime scene, and everyone's laughing and joking. And I get it. When you're in that type of career, you do have a different type of sense of humor. I I understand that. Mm -hmm what happens within that life and that job. And I, I know that sense of humor is different amongst everyone, but nobody was taking it seriously. They were making light of everything. And that meant that nothing was being done either. Everyone was just kind of walking around doing their own thing. And then at the end of the day, someone gets a charge laid on them that had nothing to do with them. Right. And, and the, the, the lack of seriousness translates into a lack of serious, lack of seriousness in the vehicle with the, with the effort and the enterprise translates into a lack of urgency and seriousness at the scene. And that's what really, that's right. And what is really discouraging to me, I guess, is that the, just the lack of compassion for another human being, because most of the cases we work on, like I'm not referring to please bring me home because those are cold cases that yeah. there, there is no body there, you know, there's no body, there's no crime. So it's a, yeah. it's a different thing that they're talking about when we to discuss those cases. But in our cases, somebody has died. Yeah. Sometimes multiple people have died. Or, or in that, our case we work, it's also domestic violence and sexual that's assault. That's right. Just, Some, just as something traumatizing. Has happened. Absolutely. It. And nobody's taking it seriously. And I just, I feel, I fear for those, or I feel for those people because it was or is somebody's life. That is another human being. Yeah. Well, that's, that's very compassionate. And I'll tell you what, what happens over time, I think, is that with, especially with law enforcement, is they, are not into the compassion is they get the compassion fatigue they get jaded they get they i get start, that too but you, know. you start to what no it's true you're right we all get it eventually i understand yeah i understand that aspect of it as well but i also think that if there is a lack of empathy or a lack of compassion at all it you also don't take anything seriously anymore problem right that's the problem you gotta you gotta have some Something that you're, you gotta have a belief that what you're doing is important, and that you're and an understanding of your place in serving the justice system, and you have That's to take right. it seriously. And, and what people I love get into those jobs, they do it better. What? Yeah, people get into those jobs, and what do you hear? You ask, why did you get into law enforcement? Well, I wanted to help people. Well, then help people. Yeah, figure it out. Get <laughs> educated. Do it. You're the one that's supposed to be doing it. What, what happens, I have found, is that they start making mistakes, they start doing bad practice, making mistakes, screwing up, 
and their their job becomes less about doing the job and helping people and more about shielding themselves from inquiry so nobody finds out how terrible they're, they've been doing right. at their job, how little training they have, how many lies they've told, and how much evidence they've screwed up, or how many people they put away for bad things. One of the things that we are, we're seeing now is that uh, law enforcement is being taught, or law enforcement is mirroring this idea of bullying that starts on the playground and comes into law enforcement where they just make up laws. They just make up rules yeah. and say, I'm the cop. I'm going to arrest you for X. And the person will say, that's, and you'll, you can watch the videos. The videos are, are being made on a regular basis. People are doing audits of police agencies and public agencies to show that they're making up laws to suggest that the law has been broken to arrest people for laws that don't exist. And that happens a lot. This, this has its roots in racism, in Jim Crow, and in control of different groups of social class. You know what I mean? That's the problem. This is a pattern and practice that's been going on a long time. And they're not coming to law enforcement believing that's what it is. They're coming to law enforcement, as you said, to help people. But then over time, they learn from their from the seasoned investigators, the seasoned police officers, that in order to prevail over a regular citizen, all you need to do is lie and threaten. And even put the cuffs on them and make a display of, of putting them in the car. And for most people, they'll wet their pants and be frightened and do what they're told. Yeah. But more people are now becoming aware of how common this practice is. And more people are now. And that's because of, thankfully, for cell phones. Cell phones are to change the way that policing is being done. And that's why the first thing a police officer will say if they see they're being recorded is, turn that off. It's illegal. It isn't yeah. illegal. And they don't have to turn it off. It's not. That's a lie. In fact, if you continue with that kind of speech, you can actually get your department sued with a very large settlement for that kind of bad behavior, for lying about the law, not understanding civil rights, and for um, essentially trying to coerce a citizen with an illegal order. Now, the why that matters is because that behavior translates into the crime scene. Mm -hmm. They take that bullying attitude, behavior, and belief system into the crime scene. And they think that, well, it's not what it is. It's whatever I can make it into. I, now I'm God. I can make this crime into whatever I want by, by curating my collection efforts into one against one person or against in, in, to confirm one narrative and one scenario, not with a real interest to the truth. And that's the pernicious problem that we have is that if you don't have good training, if you don't have a real respect for justice or an understanding of people's civil rights, you're just going to start violating to protect yourself. Because once you start down this path of bad practice, you got to spend all your time protecting yourself from all the mistakes you've made and lying about right. it and changing reports. One of the um, one of my favorite things is to read police reports. Like we talked about this before, police reports. When you have a police report, it, you read a paragraph. It sounds interesting and it sounds very organized and very well done and good grammar and states the facts. <laughs> and see that paragraph in twenty other reports, exactly word for word. Now that sure I did that with you, if you and I did that in a in a case. If we had two different reports and we did something like that, they would say we were colluding and that we were non-scientific and unreliable. Law enforcement does it every day because they have it's not it's not five guys writing the reports. It's one guy writing the report and he shares his material with everybody. They just change their name at the bottom of the report or the top or wherever the hell it goes. But, yeah, that's that's I, what they're doing. I caught on to that because, again, something I didn't think would happen. Right. Everyone has their own perspective of the events and they're supposed to be writing separate notes. You passed me a couple of cases and I kept opening police reports and I thought, well, I just read this one. Well, I read that yeah. one too. Wait a second. Why did, why are you telling me I have like five different police reports when I don't? And then I went back and looked at the names, all the same report, just different names. That's right. It's complete. To me, that is tampering. That's tampering with a report. 
You have to write your narrative from your perspective. Unfortunately, Absolutely. nobody gets in trouble for that. And I, I think I'm going to start trying to do better about pointing that out when I work cases because I'm getting real tired of it. And I don't see it getting better. That's the other thing I wanted to say for people. The myths about crime scene investigation is we have new technologies and tools that are going to make crime scene investigation easier. We don't. The same technology exists today as existed 20 years ago. It has not changed or evolved or even gotten better. In fact, I would argue that it's gotten worse because as police agencies are defunded or they're, they're le they get less funding for things, the crime scene unit is the one that gets cut first. The crime scene unit, they go out there and maybe they have batteries for their recorders or not. Yeah, maybe yeah. they have batteries for their camera or they, maybe they don't. Maybe let's they have be real. Let's be <laughs> yeah. real for a second. Even yeah. if all of those things got better over yeah. time, you still have to get that piece of evidence to that place. And there's a disconnect here. We can have high tech machines and, and ways of doing things, but if the evidence never gets there, it doesn't matter. And most of the evidence they say they're collecting doesn't get there or they don't do this or they don't do that. So it doesn't even matter. Well, let's, let's talk about two things real quick, just to, uh, to show the two kinds of technologies that are, that are new. Uh, mm -hmm. that have that they're supposed to have revolutionized crime scene investigation, but they haven't. All they've done has been really good money pits for private for the private sector. All right. One is 3D crime scene mapping. I have worked a lot of cases where they got 3D crime scene mapping. You know how useful that is? It's not useful at all. They take the machines that they use to model homes for home sales and they do 3D crime scene mapping. You can you can zoom through in and look around. No, those are the the, the way that this the software works. It gives you kind of a partial feel for some spatial relationships, kind of, but it's pretty shit in point of fact. It's actually better for me, more useful for me to just use the photos. I'd rather have good photos than a 3D crime scene because a 3D crime scene isn't a 3D crime scene. It's a big mess of, of pastiche or a composite of photos put into a really weird, funky uh, software that you have to use to view it. And it's just, mm -hmm. I found it to be very clunky ham-handed and not useful. I'm not a, not a big fan. It costs hundreds of thousand dollars for the software and it costs tens of thousand dollars to keep the training update and the software is proprietary. So you can only view the render with the software that you've got. And they update it often enough that you have to keep buying packages and licenses. It is a money pit. It is designed to take the money that you have for law enforcement and dump it into the private sector, often by co with companies run by other cops, by retired cops. So it's a great little graft that doesn't have any bearing on reality and does not help me do my job better. I'd rather have sounds good. what sounds good to the general population. It actually does. So that's number one. Number two is I just had to write this white paper uh, for a case I was working on a triple homicide in California because of the lies that are being told in court about uh, cell, uh, cell towers. And the determination of a person's position based on cell tower information. What we found out, there's a belief based on the technology that exists for food delivery services, your Google Maps services, that since those services exist and they exist for the regular person on your phone, that you can target a person down to a couple meters, right? You can do that. We can do that right now with our cell phones. Can law enforcement do that with cell tower data? No, they can't. Not after the fact. You can do it live. Doing it live is one thing. That's one thing. But using cell phone tower data, historical tower data to do an analysis and figure out where a person was, it doesn't work. It's actually it's actually very unreliable. And there was a big scandal in Europe where they had to let something like 800 people out of prison. 
because they've been convicted falsely using cell tower data. Wow. Yeah, there's a whole journal article about it. So if you are thinking that 3D crime scene renders are the new wave and it's the great stuff, as someone who does this on a regular basis, I can tell you that the, the technology is clunky, inefficient, and it's great money for retired cops trying to open up startup businesses. But it's not effective for crime reconstruction that I've seen. Nothing. It's not better than photographs and a, and a, and a diagram. You get more information from a hand, hand-drawn diagram and photographs than you do from a 3D crime scene render because you're going to make the mistake of treating it like it's sacrosanct and it's not. And cell tower data, historical data, not live, but historical data. When you're going back and looking at the paper, the paper trail and the and the, it, it's not. It is not absolute, and it cannot pinpoint locations. It can't. They've had that. They've actually started on the, the the cell tower data now that you get from the phone company when you're working on a case. The historical data now comes with a warning not to use it as absolute, not to use it as certain historical data. This is different than again the live function. Than live, yeah. yeah. And I've heard live cell phone. You can find them. That's within a, th a few meters. That's not a thing. But the problem yeah. is the historical data and trying to use that to map out where somebody was historically during a period of time. I find that that's something that's brought up in the cold cases as well. Cause they're like, well, where were they last seen or where was their cell phone? Where did it ping off last? Yeah. And bringing all of that up, it brings up like five different towers in a huge <laughs> vicinity that you can't even begin to, to figure that out. It's not accurate whatsoever. Yeah, I just did it. I had to do, I can pull it up here. So I'll show you this real quick because I don't think I've even shown it to you because we did it for a case. I had to actually pre prepare for a case. Share the screen. Here we go. Boom. And share. So this right here is, I believe it says, here we go. Historical cell site location information and forensic context. Um, it's been, there's a bunch of different articles on it, but historical, this is right from the, a, 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 a peer-reviewed forensic science journal article on the issue. It is junk science to use it with absolute certainty. It is, has been offered as objective scientific location evidence in criminal trials. It's actually been used to actually convict people, but it's not precise. It's way less precise than people claim it is. Not only is there no way to pinpoint a cell phone's precise geographic location from historical data, but there's also no known validation of error rates for these methods. Basically, they had to, there was in 2019, they had a huge scandal is when it happened. And they uh, had to let a bunch of people out of prison because of it. And they're still studying it right now. They're still studying the viability of this data. But as of this writing, as of right now, in this moment, you can't use it historically. Live, yeah, if the phone's active and it's live, you can go find them, but not mm -hmm. for actual historical data analysis. You can't tell where people were because of the way cell towers work. And because it, because they um, well here here let me give you one piece of information that will help. So what do you know? How sometimes you your cell phone works really shitty in one area, and your friend who has a different company works perfectly in that area. You want to know why? Why? Because your carrier is choosing what tower to use based on the cost, not based on location. You have a tower here on your block right outside your house, let's say, and you got one that's two a half a mile away. If the half a mile away one is cheaper at the moment, in that moment, that's, that's when your carrier is going to use Okay? That's just Very one variable. Just one mm -hmm. out of hundreds of variables that dictate whether or not a certain cell tower is going to get used. So you can be using that cell tower, but be quite a bit away. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people understand that. That's, that's the difference between the, the, the law enforcement's 
desire to present this kind of information as absolute and the scientific reality of its limitations. And that's why this kind of data and information needs to be interpreted by scientists and not police officers or, or, or lawyers. Right. I'm gonna, we're going to end it there. Is there anything you'd like to conclude with? I mean, because I, I really like how you've, you, you humanize the process because I think that gets lost. And I, I'm, I'm very bad about that too. I, I try to be good about that, but the, the humanizing this process is very important to me. So thanks for that. Well, in this, in this type of work and the things you see and the things I'm beginning to see more of, mm -hmm. I can understand how it gets to that point, right? It's the same thing. It's frustrating. It's over and over. There's things not being done and it becomes more about that than people or the victims or or the so I understand where that comes from but at the same time I'm trying not to lose sight of that right. because I don't want to just be that person that's doing the same thing yep. we're not the protagonist that's the important yeah. thing we are not the protagonist at all the protagonist is always going to be the victim and part of the job of the crime scene investigators is to help establish who the actual victim is mm -hmm. all right Well, let's leave it there. Thank you for joining me this week again, Melanie. We will Absolutely. we will see you again next week, I hope. We'll talk about more and better stuff and get smarter and work things out and provide hopefully what we find to be good and reliable information for people to use on. This has been The Hard Truth. We'll see you next week. The Hard Truth is an original podcast by the Forensic Criminology Institute, produced by Diana Garcia, edition Sara Garcia and Alan Soria, additional voices Paul Solino and Sophie Garcia. If you're interested in the Institute activities, please visit the website forensic-institute.com or email us to contact at forensic-institute.com.